Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay. All right. I also want to commend you for being here early. Good job. The new year, first Sunday of the year. Well done, especially when you knew it was going to be in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is not an easy book of the Bible to read or to understand or go through. I was thinking about this. You need spiritual teeth to handle this book. Uh, it's the meat of the word. And if, but if you can chew it, then you'll be strong. You'll have strong spiritual muscles. That's the truth. So in the passage we're going to look to today, in Jeremiah chapter 14 and 15, one writer described a portion of this passage as Jeremiah's soliloquy. Do you know what that is? <laughs> I didn't. I had to look that one up. I also had to look up how to pronounce it, too. But a soliloquy. It is a dramatic speech that's uttered when no one else is on stage. So all the other characters have moved off the stage, and the leading actor comes out and in front of the whole audience begins to pour out his soul. And it's meant to be, to look like a private speech that this person is having, but you're in on it, and you get to listen to their innermost feelings. All the other characters in Israel, in just a few moments, we're going to see go off the stage, and Jeremiah is left there with God, kind of trying to figure out what God is doing, and really dealing with his own uh, issues and his own feelings into all this tragedy that he's seeing. He's struggling with the calling that, he, that has been put on him to speak God's word in a world that, where no one wants to hear him. And this job that Jeremiah has is getting to him. I want to quickly review the situation. We're going to run through chapter 14 and most of 15, and then I want to end. I want to try to get to the end because there is a powerful finish in this, and I want to bring it to light. Let's quickly review the situation. The year is around 600 BC. God's people, the Jews, are are now a divided nation, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And by the time, this time, Jeremiah's time, Israel, the northern tribes, have already been taken captive by Assyria. Now, Judah has been uh, acting and living exactly like their northern brothers in wickedness, and God is now saying, I'm going to allow you now to be taken into captivity because of all your sin. It's not going to be Assyria this time, it's going to be Babylon, but, but Judah had not learned anything by watching Israel go into captivity. It's a, the moral unraveling of a nation. It's, the, it's just a downward spiral. There, yes, there were some good moments in, in there, but man, it's been bad. And so in the middle of all this, and God is ready now to send the judgment. And so really here at the very end, right as he's about to send the judgment, he brings, he sends a mouthpiece for God to speak to the people. A mouthpiece that was raised from his mother's womb, called even inside his mother's womb. His name, Jeremiah. 
And he would start as a very young man, and he would prophesy and preach and give the message of God for 40 years. He would minister in the darkest days of Judah's history during the judgment of God. And let me tell you, it is hard to warn people when you're hated by everybody you're warning. And it's even harder, I think, for for Jeremiah to witness the judgment of God on his brothers and sisters firsthand. His his job was getting harder and harder on him personally. And we're going to see him share his feelings. But unfortunately, his feelings tend to start to spiral also into self-pity. And then we're going to see God respond to Jeremiah in his self-pity. And here's a hint about what God does. God does not coddle Jeremiah. (laughs) And I think God's message needs to be heard. I think God's message to what he said to Jeremiah needs to be heard and what he says really to all of us who Christians who live in a wicked environment. And what we're just trying to witness to people, but yet facing so many uh, persecutions maybe or just hatred, whatever. We left off in chapter 12, and in 12 and 13, you see 11 pictures about how God views sin, their sin in Judah, and the judgment that's coming. But I want to start today in chapter 14. We're going to go quickly through this chapter because it sets up that soliloquy in chapter 15. See if you can remember that word by the end of today, okay? Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth or the drought. So 900 years prior to this moment, 900 years, God had made a covenant with Israel as they entered the promised land, the Palestinian covenant. You know, it's a serious thing to enter into a covenant relationship with God. God doesn't take that as a joke or some small thing. It's a big thing because God will always keep his word and he wants his people to do the same. And he wants Israel to do what they, their end of the the covenant. And God will always keep his word, whether to bless or to punish or to chasten. He's always going to do what he says he's going to do. And if we're you think about this, if we are recipients of God's love and blessing, then we can expect also to be the recipient of his chastening if we disobey. That's just how this thing works, and God is always faithful. He will bless where he says he'll bless, and when he warns, he will send chastening. Now, part of this covenant was that if his people in this promised land disobeyed God and served other gods and not followed his law, they, God would send discipline. And one of the forms of discipline in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is that there would be a drought in the land. God would withhold the rain. So now, here in Jeremiah chapter 14, God's making good on his promise that he had made so many years ago. He had sent He sends this drought, and it's having its desired effect on the people. They're starting to realize, you know what? We actually might need God. And in agrarian society, like ancient Israel, a drought means complete devastation. Imagine what no rain would do to a place like that, where everything is really built around farming, and and your whole livelihood is really dependent on the rain. Well, actually, this whole drought is described here. Let's go through these quickly. Verse 2. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. This is because of the drought. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. 
They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. So this is saying here that even the wealthy couldn't send people out for water. <laughs> let's, just, let's just remind ourselves, if God wants to send judgment, you, your money is not going to matter one bit. Amen. Nobody's money does. You couldn't even buy them water at this time. It wasn't, but it wasn't just the drinking water. No, farmers couldn't even grow anything. Look in verse 4. Because the ground is chapped, for there is no rain in the earth. The plowmen, or the farmers, were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yea, the hind also calved in the field. Uh, the cow calved in the field and forsook it, because there was no grass. And the wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail, because there was no grass. Notice how the sin of the people had caused even the natural world to suffer. The ground was dry, it was chapped, and animals had no grass for feed. So these mother cows, it says, these hinds would actually have their little baby calves out in the field, and they would just leave their calves to die. And these calves would be dying in the field because there was no grass to eat. Sin affects everything. Just look at some of these big cities around America and look at what sin does to them. Look at what sin does even to the earth. And this drought had a spiritual effect on the people also and they realized that their false gods weren't doing anything for them. So they turned to the true God for help at this moment. They're, they're desperate now. But as we'll come to see, God knew that this wasn't true repentance. Verse 7, look what they say. O oh Lord... Though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. Good words so far. Good words so far. But look at verse 8. Oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble. Now this might give us a little clue as to how they were viewing God at this moment. The Savior in time of trouble. And he is that, but... Maybe this is all they were seeing him as. Why shouldest thou be as a stranger, God, in the, in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man astonied, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Now, <clears throat> this is really half repentance because they admit their sin, but then they begin to disparage God's character. They begin to say things against him. God, why are you like a stranger in our, or a traveler just coming through in our land? Why are you acting like a frightened soldier? They can't do anything. Now, if I could stand up for God here, you know, I, in this moment, I would say, God, can you just admit, let me deal with these people. Let me talk to them for a second here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, you baby-killing, fornication-saturated, violence-loving people. You're now asking God to show up for you after all that you have done uh, to him, after all of your hatred and all of your uh, ignoring him and turning your back on him. We don't even know the half of the sin of these people. But this is human nature. This is human nature. We tend to downgrade our own sin. I do it too. We all do it. We don't see ourselves as that bad. 
J. Wallace Hamilton said, Our modern age is a pushover for the shallow and the shortcut. We want to change everything except the human heart. We don't want to change here. I know everybody's wrong except right here. But, but you know what? I don't have to stand up for God. Thankfully, God can stand up for himself. Look what verse 10. Thus saith the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Lord unto me, this is Jeremiah, Pray not for this people for their good. Now, this is the second time God has said to Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Don't even pray. I'm done. I can no longer withhold judgment. 900 years is long enough to put up with this. Verse 12, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. God is serious. God is serious about judgment, and he is going to send it. Don't even pray, Jeremiah. But this is where now we see Jeremiah, I think, start to feel a little sorry for the people. That's the sense I get in these next few verses. Verse 13, Then said I, Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah speaking now, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So, so what it seems like Jeremiah is now saying is, God, you can't really blame the people. The, their prophets are telling them, they're running around saying, that God's fine with this. There's going to be no sword. There's going to be no famine. There's peace. God assures peace. Peace, peace, peace. So many parallels in our world today. Do you see it? So many people. Watch out for the Hakuna Matata prophets out there. Verse 14, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies. This is God. The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. What I'm a little concerned about, and I'm not sure, and some commentators maybe think, is that Jeremiah himself maybe even was starting to believe some of these other prophets. Lord, I'm hearing from you, but are these prophets? And God is saying, listen, they are prophesying lies. Don't listen. Verse 15, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. God says, don't worry, Jeremiah, I'm, I'm going to deal with the false prophets. You don't deal with them, I'll deal with them. But is it the prophet's fault that the people are not repenting and turning to God? No, I th- you can't blame it all on the prophets. You can't blame it all on the preachers. People are still responsible for their own choices. And here is the judgment that God now will pass on to these people that we're listening to the false prophets. And it is graphic and it is emotional. Verse 16, And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And they shall have none to bury them. 
them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters. For I will pour their wickedness upon them. Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them. Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with the sword. And if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Yea, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land that they know not. In other words, nothing is as it used to be. Nothing is, as, nothing is good any longer. Jeremiah, with prophetic vision, sees Judah in the future. And it's like this precious virgin daughter that has been violated, beaten, and left to die. Everywhere, there's death and dying. The land is unrecognizable. I was thinking about this, and it reminds me of Operation Shock and Awe in Iraq, you know, many years ago. That was the whole Operation Shock and Awe. We're just going to come in there and just blow it to smithereens and just ruin the morale of the people. And this judgment is going to come in with shock and awe. But these words, I do want to point this out. The words are very, uh, they're, they're very meaningful. They are, they're from God himself. Vir, the virgin daughter of my people. Those words show God's heart in all of this. God does not take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. God does not take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. And he especially does not take pleasure in the judgment of his own children. See, God can feel both simultaneously. He can feel the wrath of sin and grief over the people's sin. He can feel anger over sin and love for his children. He can feel both. He's like a father who, has, who must discipline his child, but is weeping as he administers that discipline. And any, any parent, any loving parent understands that feeling. I don't want to do this, but I must do this, and it must hurt. But this judgment on the people is becoming very difficult for Jeremiah to hear. And so he begins to plead with God on Judah's behalf. Verse 19, hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us? And there is no healing for us. We looked for peace and there is no good. And for the time of healing and behold trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers. For we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can, give, uh, can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. Now Warren Wearsby makes an interesting observation here. Remember, God told Jeremiah, do not pray for these people. But here Jeremiah now prays as one of the people, with the people. He says we and us, not they and them. He really just puts himself in there. And this is the right thing to do. It's a national confession. Lord, our people, we, we have sinned. All of us. 
And Lord, we are ashamed of our sin. And it's a good prayer. It's a powerful prayer. It's a, it's a pouring out of his heart. And, and he wants to see God uh, restore. But Jeremiah is still somehow hoping that God will turn from his plan and not send this judgment. But here is the sobering truth this morning that we must talk about. And this is why this is the meat of the word. God sometimes says no to even the most powerful prayer. And this was a moment in history where God was not going to change his mind. Look at this next amazing verse, Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 1. It's an amazing verse to me. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. This is so grievous to the heart of God. The sin has been pervasive for so long. The rebellion against God was so, so bad that God had, it was done. The train of judgment is on the tracks and nothing is going to stop it. The die is cast. God's response basically to Jeremiah is, I don't know how to make this more clear to you, Jeremiah. I am not going to turn this plan around. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me. Now every Jew knew the Old Testament accounts of Moses standing before God and begging God to change his mind in in his Uh, judgment toward the people and God did and every Jew knew the story of Samuel Samuel doing the same thing there's it's written about in the Old Testament Samuel pleading to God and God turning his judgment away but God says this time it's different nothing's going to stop me this time and God wanted Jeremiah to be the one to tell the people that folks it's going to get way worse and it's going to get far worse than just a drought. A drought is the, is the least of your worries. In fact, there was one of four ways that God was, this was going to go for all the people. And it's written here in verse, starting in verse 2. And it shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then, God's telling this to Jeremiah, Then shalt thou tell them, Thus saith the Lord, Such as are for death to death. Such as are for the sword, to the sword. And such as are for the famine, to the famine. And such as are for captivity, to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to tear, the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Verse 4, and I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. Judah's obedience to God's word had been up and down for centuries, but about 40 or 50 years prior to Jeremiah, things had gotten worse than they had ever been. It was a new king that came. It was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a very good king. But Manasseh, his son, led the people into things that we cannot even speak about right here. It would make you sick. And God does not forget. God does not forget. Second Kings chapter 21, it's not here, but let me read it to you. Verse 16, it says, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, 
till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Killing babies, evil idolatry, encouraging temple prostitution, and all kinds of other adulterous activity. Manasseh led Judah into the irreversible judgment of God. And since those days, the people had still not come to God in repentance on his terms. So God is saying, I, I am going to pour this out. And there's going to be four different types of judgment that's going to pass on each person. Verse 5, for who shall have pity on thee, O Jerusalem, or who shall bemoan thee, or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. That's God. Or we could say maybe relenting. God has been holding back judgment for so long, but no more. I'm not going to do it anymore. I've changed my mind too many times. I've held back and held myself back and held myself back. But I'm not going to do it anymore. Why does God take so long to send judgment on sin? I sometimes wonder about that living in America. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm 42 years old and I, I'm seeing, I've been hearing preachers talk about the sin of America all my life. And they're right, by the way. Amen. It has gotten worse. And you wonder when God's going to deal with this in a big way. You know, in some ways he has and some people he has. But what's, when is it going to happen? Why does God hold back? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Again, I don't have it here, but listen. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God waits and waits and waits and waits and waits because it says here he is long-suffering. That is an attribute of God. This, it says that in the Old Testament, he gave that as, a, as an attribute of himself to Moses. I am uh, merciful, long-suffering, slow to anger. That is what God is. And his will is that People would not die in judgment, but they would repent. This is a very biblical description of God. He suffers long until the day comes that he can hold back no longer because he loves people. Jeremiah continues to give the bleak words of God, verse 7, And I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they return not from their ways. Their widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. I have brought upon them against the mother of the young men a spoiler at noonday. I have caused him to fall upon it suddenly and terrors upon the city. She that hath borne seven languisheth. She hath given up the ghost. Her son has gone down while it is yet day. She hath been ashamed and confounded and the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, saith the Lord. You cannot say that God doesn't take sin seriously. We cannot say that God just thinks nothing of our sin. He's speaking of the armies of Babylon here who will come in and spoil the land. 
There would be countless deaths and many widows left on the earth, on, in, in uh, Judah. Mothers with seven sons uh, will lose all of their sons, all seven of them. And they would just be so in depression and grief, they would just, be, in, even in the middle of the day, will feel like night to them. Well, this dark message just struck Jeremiah and his emotions. It was so hard for him to hear. And I mean, it's hard for us to hear. But he, uh, knowing these people and his own brothers and sisters, the job of delivering one hard message after another to careless people was really taking a toll on Jeremiah. And he cries out now from his heart, verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. He says, I really wish I never would have been born. I hate all this. All I do is speak strife and contention to the people. Never good news. Always bad news. I, I could understand them hating me if I owed them money. <laughs> or if they owed me money and I was coming after them. But I don't. And yet they hate me. The social cost of preaching God's word was just unbearable. You know, it's funny. Jeremiah becomes so much like us here. Or seem so much like us to me. I, we, we know in our hearts that we've been called to be different from the world. We know that. And we know in our hearts that it's our job to give an unpopular message. Even though, because we know it'll change people. But we're called to do that no matter the cost. And we know that. But we complain when there is a cost. When people hate us. And Jeremiah is sick of nobody liking him. <laughs> And God graciously gives him a little bit of light here in this next verse. It's so sweet to hold on to in this darkness. The Lord said, verse 11, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. It shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. You know, God always has a remnant, a remnant of people. Even if it's small, there are, there are always a group of people who love the Lord, who have a true heart toward God, who are in obedience to God, who are walking with the Lord, God-honoring people. And they will be taken captives, God says, by the enemy. But the enemy will treat them well. And this included Jeremiah. But God is clear here that Judah <clears throat> wouldn't be able to defeat Babylon. They were like iron. They were unbreakable. Look at verse 12. Shall iron break the northern iron and the steel? Thy substance and thy treasures will I give to the spoil without price, and that for all thy sins, even in all thy borders. And I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into a land which thou knowest not, for a fire is kindled in mine anger, which shall burn upon you. The Babylonians would come from the north and plunder all the treasures Judah had built up. All those years, all their stuff, Babylon was going to take away. Reminds me of those images of World War II when the Nazis came in and just took everything out of those Jewish homes and piled them in big piles and all their gold and jewelry and they took all their worldly, worldly goods and handed it over. That's what it reminds me of. That's what Babylon was going to do. They would also carry many away into captivity 
God reminded them in verse 13, though, there that it was all because of their sins. It was because of their sins. Jeremiah once again begins to speak. His words reveal his turmoil between his heart of faith and his feelings of frustration. I honor you, Lord. I trust you, but all what I'm seeing is, is hurting me, and I'm frustrated. Verse 15, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I love the words of this verse. Jeremiah is saying in the middle of all this unrelenting persecution that I face every day and nobody likes me and they hate me and they tell me to shut up and go over and stop talking to them. Oh, in the middle of all that, the only thing that was bringing me any kind of joy was the word of God. I would go alone and I would hear from you. That's the only thing that raised me up. And anyone who's lived as a believer for more than 20 years, a faithful believer for more than 20 years, you go talk to them and they'll understand verse 16. They'll understand what that means. Sometimes you can't, there's the only thing in life that brings you joy is the word of God. You can't make it without the word of God being the joy and rejoicing of your heart. I heard somebody this week, not a believer, talk about the death of a loved one that they had and her words were this. It struck me. She said, I didn't know life could be this painful. I didn't even know life could, could feel this bad. And Jeremiah was crying out in pain, but he was saying that the only thing that gives me hope in this painful situation, this messed up world, are the promises of God. Everything else just comes up empty. But the context of this verse is interesting. He's saying this in the context, context of listing out for God all of his righteous deeds to show God that he shouldn't be suffering persecution. He continues, verse 17, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation, anger, and rage. In other words, I've been doing everything right. In my free time, I sat alone while everybody else was out partying. I didn't get involved in all the world's stuff. I've kept myself pure. I faithfully spoke the word of God day after day. And Lord, I'm repaid with mocking and loneliness and anger from the people. Verse 18, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? Jeremiah had some expectations of God and a buildup of emotion. He asked if God was ever going to help him. I've done everything I know to do and I'm not seeing the blessings, God. This is the raw prayer of an honest man. There's no fluffy Christian prayer here. But I'm thankful for Jeremiah's faith. Instead of running from God or complaining about God on social media, he just stop, talks straight to God. He just brings his feelings to the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't start going spreading things around. You have to respect him for this. In fact, I give Jeremiah great respect for writing it down so that for thousands of years people can read what was going on in his heart and not covering it up. People just get angry sometimes and they start deconstructing their faith and mocking the Bible 
And then they want to get other people on their side so they end their holy war. Not Jeremiah. And God doesn't change for Jeremiah either. Now verse 19. Let's go through this quickly. Therefore thus saith the Lord. Here's God's response. If thou return, Jeremiah, then will I bring thee again. And thou shalt stand before me. And if thou, shalt, and if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. In this verse, there is a bit of rebuke to a spiritually discouraged man. But there's also a pathway back to spiritual toughness. Here are the three things. Jeremiah, you need to return. God's telling him you've moved away, so you need to return. Jeremiah, come to God not with your expectations and your list of good deeds, but come with your sins. None of us deserve any good thing from God. God doesn't owe us. We owe God. We need mercy, not a pat on the back. Sometimes God has to tell the preacher of repentance to repent himself. Return, Jeremiah, return. You've been, you're kind of going away. Come back. Come back. I still want to use you. Then the second thing is, take forth the precious from the vial. I believe God's telling Jeremiah to stop listening to the vile, worthless words of the people. And take in the precious words of God instead. Take the precious. Remove the vial. You're listening too much to those surrounding people. And all the stuff they're saying and doing. And you're getting swayed by them. Like Peter taking his eyes off of Jesus and sinking. Put your eyes on me. And then lastly he says, "Return. let them return to thee, but return not to them. In other words, let them come to your level. You don't sink down to their level. You keep obeying the Lord. Don't worry about them. what's going on with them down there, what they're saying down there. If they want to get right with God, let them come up to your level. Let them be your friend at that point. But don't you give up everything just to go down and be friends with them. Just because people don't like you. So let's apply this to us. Today our duty, like Jeremiah, is to tell the world of the saving work of Jesus before it's too late. And if we start feeling those feelings of self-pity, that we deserve better treatment, somebody ought to pat me on the back more, somebody ought to like me more, I feel like nobody likes me, then we need to do these three things that God told Jeremiah. Number one, repent of a wandering heart. Number two, remove the lies of the world. And number three, remain steadfast in obedience. And if we will do that, I think we can pray then, Jeremiah's promise in these next few verses and I'm done. Here's what God says, if you'll do that, Jeremiah. And I will make thee unto this people a fenced, brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. This is the same promise that God gave to Jeremiah at the very beginning of his ministry in chapter 1. To me, this is almost like this was a ministry reset for Jeremiah. It's gotten hard to serve the Lord, and no one's listening to me. But God says, I will make you a brazen wall, just like I promised at the beginning, if you'll return. Stop listening to them. Listen to me. I'll protect you. I'll be around you no matter what happens. Those of you who watched that Burma Rangers missionary movie last week, it was amazing. They were amazing people. But listen, every Christian who remains steadfast 
in this kind of in a wicked environment is amazing too. We're all soldiers for the Lord. Don't get mopey and whiny. Understand that we, it is a tough thing to serve the Lord, but we have a, we have a God who gives us a brazen wall around us. Amen. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Amen. Lord, we trust you. We thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.